Welcome to the Billings Police Department Unfiltered Podcast, Episode 6. Today we're going to be talking active shooter incidents uh, and discussing a lot of questions that come up after events like that. Recently on March 22nd in Boulder, Colorado, one of the grocery stores, there was an active shooter where 10 were killed to include one officer. No doubt there is an impact to the individuals directly involved, but there's also a larger impact into the community as well. Lots of challenges for the community, the citizens, as well as the responders that have to respond to these types of incidents. Inevitably, it's a reality these days that this is a national trend. Uh, we've had an increase in active shooters since 2000 and uh, or the early 2000s. And every time we have questions from the community, we get questions from some of the city leaders. Um, is the police department prepared? Is the city prepared? Uh, to respond to these. And then we also get questions from citizens and business owners of questions of how are they prepared or what should they do in these circumstances. And so that's where we're going to go today. Uh, hopefully we're going to have a little bit better understanding of how these events unfold, uh, what you should individually do, uh, what things that businesses uh, can do to help prevent or mitigate losses to life during an, an unfortunate event like this, and then what to expect from responders and then just kind of a, a good idea of, of what your city has already done uh, to prepare to respond for this. Uh, my guest today is going to be uh, Billings Fire Department Battalion Chief Jason Lyon. Jason, welcome. Hey, good morning, Brandon. Thanks for having me here today. See, so I think there's going to be a lot of listeners who are going to be thinking, why do I have a Fire Department Battalion Chief here as my guest uh, while we're talking about active shooter stuff? People think that it's a, a law enforcement only thing. Um, but truly it's a collaborative, uh, approach to resolutions when these types of ha things happen in the community. Yeah, absolutely, Brandon. And one of the things that you and I have worked on over the last five, six, seven years is the understanding that, uh, these problems are oftentimes so big and so overwhelming and chaotic and rapidly evolving that, uh, maybe even the most, uh, highly staffed metropolitan departments are going to be challenged to the edge to to respond to such a thing and in a uh, you know a more uh, rural but city environment like we live in the only way we've ever been able to get anything done is through working with each other uh, both uh, fire law enforcement EMS but you know even our friends in street traffic and city administration and public transportation you know we've used all of them in emergencies because these events can stress us to the point where we break so you hit on a couple good things and that's one of the things that when we're teaching active shooter I always tell our guys I don't know anybody or any organization that is good at these high threat incidences yeah they're super complex there's always communication breakdowns the other good point that you bring up is we're it the next closest major resource for us in billings is bozeman great falls other bigger cities sheridan obviously we've got a lot of smaller agencies but if we have something major happen here uh, it's going to be a while before we get a big draw of resources yeah absolutely the other reason why I have you here today is so there's, there's a few things. You know, I've been working on um, high threat response stuff for the last several years um, between the city and the fire department. Uh, the other thing is you graduated from the Naval Postgraduate School from the Center of Homeland Defense and Security uh, with a master's degree. 
And specifically, one of your thesis was regarding armed citizen response to high threat incidences. Yeah, th- that's uh, that was a really important topic to me there, where after researching a whole bunch of material, some of the trends we talked about were the likelihood that armed citizens, especially in a state like ours, would take it upon themselves to respond to an incident such as this. And that is a, a factor that both fire, law enforcement, EMS need to be aware of, but also that one of the conclusions I came to, Brandon, was that the best way that as emergency services to uh, agencies, we can prepare for that is to reach out to armed citizens and uh, talk to them about how this could unfold, what our expe- expectations are, uh, what things are going to be red flags for us, how they can help and how they can hurt. And at the end, one of the conclusions I came to is that just having an outreach program to legitimate armed citizens would be the best thing we could do. And that's why I'm very excited to be here with you today, because I think the initiative you guys are showing with the podcasts dovetails right into that outreach program that, uh, that I, I firmly believe in. And I think it's a, I think it's even a little bigger on the big scheme of things than that, Jason, because we're going to, we're going to head into this here in a, in a few moments, but generationally speaking, when you talk to community crisis response, specifically an active shooter, um, armed citizen response is another generation of, of response to this. And, and we'll, we'll kind of, we'll clarify that how that pops in. Cause I know we went from, from here to the, the podcast and we're talking active shooters to armed citizen, uh, Montana just recently went to constitutional carry. Um, and so these are all things that we just want to get out there to where we can educate and understand in this evolution and, and see where we, where we've come from and where we go to and get everybody on, on the same page. Um, you know, very appreciative. So uh, back in 2019, uh, you got me an invite with yourself to go to Washington, D.C., where both you and I went to what they called the Over um, Over the Horizon. It was a high threat workshop. And it was a it was a two day workshop in Washington, D.C., put on by Homeland Security. And, and the whole idea was to bring in responders, police, fire, medical personnel and really have a futuristic thought to get ahead of changing the way that we prepare and train for these types of incidents ahead of instead of always being behind of this happened in San Bernardino and now we're going to do this. This happened in Colorado and now we do this. How do we develop a strategy and a plan to effectively respond to this? Um, and one of the things that kind of just humbled me a little bit, we sat in a room with people from the London Fire Brigade, London Police Department, Baltimore, NYPD, counterterrorism groups, uh, um, command staff from Las Vegas, uh, San Bernardino. And we were, we were in a room having high-level conversations about how do we as a community and organizations deal with these things. And everybody sitting in the room had, has dealt with or had major experience with either a major terrorist active shooter event or other high-threat incident in their community. And uh, it was kind of interesting how, how that unfolded in the conversation we were having. Right. Real humbling to be there. Uh, what I was super excited about was that we had that opportunity together because while we're in there with leaders from all those agencies you named off, so many cities more closely resemble 
uh, Billings, Montana than London, England or New York City. And I think that when we look at uh, Aurora, Colorado movie uh, movie theater shooting, or even the most recent uh, Boulder, Colorado uh, incident. Those aren't cities. Those cities are more closely represented represented to Billings, Montana, than they are to New York City. Both in terms of uh, geography, you know, that they live out here in the West, where uh, where firearms are a way of life, and in size of agency and the reliance on external to partners through mutual aid compacts and whatnot to adequately respond to that, that size of an event. And so when we're talking, you know, we're, we're using some of these words interchangeably, high threat, active shooter, but I think we should kind of define some of this stuff a little bit. And, and so active shooter is specifically speaking about somebody who's, uh, it's a homicides in progress, largely used with a firearm. But when we look at other high threat incidents that uh, we know to have occurred, that we take lessons to learn from when we develop policies and strategies to respond, we use the term high threat because that could include, uh, you know, you've seen overseas where they've used uh, large trucks or lorries to create mass killings, uh, even knives, bombings, um, gases, chemicals, those types of things. And what's important to understand about that is, um, the amount of victims and the taxes on the resources that cause the response. There's a lot of common factors in there, communications, uh, cross-training, all those types of things. So it has to be an integrated effort to respond to this. Absolutely. And that goes back to what I think we in Yellowstone County are really good at is, is cooperating with each other because we've had to because no one agency here is capable of managing big incidents from a uh, large pileup on the interstate to the events like you and I are talking about. So in that regard, I think we were really good at working together. But as you pointed out, Brandon, the type of event we're talking about is something that's very hard to practice for and is almost the very definition of uh, high risk and low frequency. I think even if we did train for it, are we able to train for it? more often and regularly like we'd like to it's still just training and if that occurs in this community it's your it's your first time doing it yeah i was in a a meeting the other day where they were talking about high risk low frequency things and what they did say was that plans pre-plans are worthless but planning is essential and i think that you know your to your point there are so many variables that can enter into an event like this, that there's no way to have a training that is representative of an actual event, or at least it would be very unlikely. However, by practicing it one way, maybe we're better at dealing with it when it comes the other way. Like we have a framework or guidelines rather than the strict protocols we've all operated under, you know, in previous generations. I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly one of the things that, you know, we taught both police and fire at our last rescue task force joint training we did um, about a year and a half or so ago was we talked about the complexity theory about how there's so many variables and you making one decision now could create a chain reaction of events later that could make it worse or you could make a decision early on that maybe not changes things right now but could improve the outcome further on. And I think that's where we're going to head today is is involving the community uh, and discussing this stuff so they understand that their involvement, what they do, how they respond, 
can help the overall outcome of this and mitigate loss of life. Yeah. Brandon, you brought up the active shooter part. You know, one of the other terms I see bandied about that I'd like your opinion on is what constitutes, you know, a mass killing. It seems like what I always read in the papers is something along the lines of uh, that there's no standardized definition. And so it's if you can't define a problem, it's, it's harder to come up with plans. Where's the BPD coming from on that? So there is a there is a national definition. So the the active shooter definition is a little bit more loosely defined, and it has to do with you know firearms, uh, intent, uh, stress on resources, that type of thing. Because um, a, a one-on-one homicide or a murder suicide, while it's occurring in progress, is is an active shooter event. Um, but then we move into the mass killing uh, or mass casualty events, and that's specifically defined by the federal government. As, as three deaths or more. Okay. And so once we hit three deaths or more, then that's what they're gonna classify as a mass killing. So um, if you have um, gang a gang-related shooting in an urban neighborhood where you've got four or five dead, that's gonna be considered to be a, a mass killing as well. Um, so when we start talking about some of these statistics, that's bunched in there as well. Uh, but traditionally speaking, when we think active shooter and, and the mass shootings, we're thinking you know Columbine, uh, Aurora, Parkland um, in, in the most traditional sense for those. Gotcha. Um, so if, if we're going to frame our conversation, then you and I are going to kind of stay away from, like you said, maybe like the murder-suicide where there are three people, you know, it fits that definition, but that's, we're talking about the active events that are kind of ongoing and that are, I, I guess, how would you say it, um, more broad, you know, more random or the victims are random or... Or even, or is it even that? Is it just uh, it's an ongoing thing? And it's and it's not so much random because when we talk about uh, some of these, like there was the Discovery Channel shooting, uh, yeah. you know, that was workplace violence. Um, you know, a lot of some of these major events are uh, revenge related or retaliation, workplace related. Uh, sometimes they are um, domestic related as far as uh, spousal relations. Right. Um, you know, a lot, um, there's a very high percentage of these shootings that start with, uh, you know, the murder of a, a, a family member yeah. and then it moves to a secondary location yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and they escalate. Um, so that's going to be kind of the, the context where we're at. And I, okay. and I want people to, you know, Boulder and the timing of this conversation is good because even we just came out of the pandemic and a lot of stuff was shut down. But one place everywhere that was open that everybody goes to, likely on a weekly basis, sometimes multiple times, is the grocery store. And I think for some people that, that mindset of, you know, if it's happening in grocery stores, it's happened in our schools, you know, I think the question comes is, is, you know, what do I do when I'm, when I am somewhere and that happens. Mm. Let's kind of shift a little bit and let's talk about like the generation and some of the lessons that we've learned to kind of set the platform for these conversations going forward. But, you know, historically Columbine uh, was really kind of like ground zero for the recognition of active shooter and response and kind of these new things that are happening in the community. Uh, and law enforcement learned uh, a big lesson out of that. And, and one, of the, one of the practices that law enforcement had before Columbine occurred was that they were going to surround the facility to contain it and then call for SWAT and wait for them to show up to mobilize, to go in and clear. And, and meanwhile, we had two shooters in Columbine that were going around continuing to, to, to create loss of life, to kill people. 
one of the lessons learned there was law enforcement changed their policies, their training, and their strategies was that this is an unconventional um, event to deal with and we need to use different procedures than what we do normal daily operations. And that just standing outside and waiting is no longer of course of action because loss of life continues to happen until until the, the suspect is engaged or or ends by taking their own life. And we'll talk about some of those statistics here. But I kind of want to circle back and, and, and use this as a reinforcement of how important that is. So Eric Talley was the officer who was, was killed in Boulder a couple of weeks ago on March 22nd. He was the last person who was killed by the suspect. Interesting. So when we start talking about the importance of a quick response and confrontation, you know, when you look at a suspect's options, once law enforcement starts showing up and they're moving towards the sound of gunfire while everybody's moving away from it, the suspect has two options to continue to engage innocent people or engage law engage with law enforcement. And if they ignore law enforcement and continue to engage innocent civilians, then that opens the door for law enforcement to be able to effectively neutralize the threat. But usually they're the ones who distract and take attention away from innocent civilians. So that's one of the, the key points that comes full circle, especially in Colorado, Columbine was there as well, is that our strategy now to uh, move directly to the threat, to neutralize the threat, either by confrontation and negotiation to get them to surrender or by other you know, use of force spectrum options. So that was one of the big key changes that law enforcement had to go through. And then we move out through the, through the years of, um, you know, the, the death tolls, the injured numbers started to get higher and we started having more events of these. And then we had the Hartford consensus and then fire department had to get on board with a little similar paradigm shift that law enforcement had to do where it used to be that law enforcement would go in and secure the scene and once the scene was secured, then we would bring in medical fire personnel to treat the casualties. And what we're finding, we were finding there is, is that once law enforcement was able to effectively go in and eliminate the threat or detain and control the person, that there was a significant gap or amount of time before life-saving medical treatment was, was being provided to the victims. And there, there was too much of a time. And so, that's where it brings in with the fire department, Jason, is, is that, 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 that paradigm shift where we're now developing strategies and programs and protocols to get fire and EMS personnel into a warm zone immediately as soon as possible to start uh, life-saving care. Absolutely. And, and that's been a big change for the fire service that when we respond to daily calls, Brandon, you know, I think agencies across the nation, typically fire and EMS will stage in the area of the event and wait to be cleared in by law enforcement. And that, that works really well on day-to-day -day occasions. The transition to a concept where uh, fire department or other trained EMTs and paramedics accompany law enforcement into a warm zone, as we call it, initially met with some resistance, especially here locally, um, because people 
uh, firefighters, that is, uh, you know, we're used to the thing, two things we hate are the way things are now and change. And so uh, <laughs> the, the transition took a little bit. But what I feel like you and I and the other instructors did that changed those mentalities, the first thing we did is remind people that we oftentimes, even on these daily calls, go into a warm zone already. You know, law enforcement hasn't secured the scene beyond a reasonable doubt. They haven't gone through every nook and cranny of the building looking for suspects because the life safety part of the injured person outweighs the need to do so. So we do that every day, but just on a smaller scale. So reminding the firefighters of that part was key. And then the thing that was the most successful piece of this from the fire department perspective is the training that we provided. And, you know, that worked out really good where we took a cadre of select people. We put them through the same training that you put your officers through. So we have that common understanding of what it is. And then the firefighters worked in kind of a train the trainer mode with the rest of the department so that everybody on the department had the same vision of interior tactics, expectations, etc. And that training component is what lowered the threshold of what we're doing. And when confronted with the question, if it was your family member uh, in that grocery store, if it was your child in that school, or you knew those people, if they're your people, are you going to be satisfied standing by waiting for this to unfold? when statistics suggest that you have the opportunity to save what lives can be saved in those critical minutes uh, at the onset of that. And, you know, from a from an elimination of liability standpoint, you know, there's a large lawsuit of uh, Los Angeles Airport during that shooting because Los Angeles Fire Department sat outside waiting for law enforcement to excruciatingly clear that scene, clear every room in the terminal, every baggage area, every box, every office, while people lay bleeding out. And we always talk about a golden hour, especially in a traumatic injury like this, where that's where lives are uh, lost or saved. And from an elimination of liability perspective, uh, it makes sense. But more importantly, from saving lives, which is our core mission, yours and mine, fire and law enforcement, that's where we make the difference. And those realizations change the paradigm here, uh, at least for our firefighters, uh, to be willing to risk a lot to save a lot is the, you know, the, the risk profile we teach our guys, risk a lot to save a lot. One of the things that was instrumental in us being able to implement this program, because, you know, it's hard to ask a firefighter to be like, hey, come with me. There's going to be some gunfire. <laughs> uh, but we also want to be smart about mitigating risk. And one of the things, we were we had the opportunity to apply for a grant. Uh, and it was Philip 66 who was looking to donate some money. Uh, they routinely donate money to the community emergency services for, for good causes. Uh, we were able to get a grant for almost $44,000 from Philip 66. And they purchased um, body armor, helmets, and medical kits with medical supplies to go on all of the fire engines uh, located in the city. Can you kind of speak to the equipment and then how it's, uh, how it's stored and why we're to treat strategically on the engines with it? Yeah, so th this was a, another critical part for the firefighters that 
when we go into a fire, we have the appropriate personal protective equipment, structural firefighting equipment, SCBA, uh, alarm systems for a downed firefighter, etc. And one of the commonalities between the International Association of Fire Chiefs and the International Association of Firefighters, which both endorse having a robust rescue task force plan, is that if you're going to go in the warm zone, you need PPE. And through, through your hard work and the uh, generosity of uh, local businesses, we were able to have a set of PPE for each member on every piece of apparatus in town. And when I hear departments, other departments say, well, we could, we have, you know, 2,500 people, we could never have 2,500 sets. Okay, well, you know, those 2,500 people, how many pieces of apparatus do you have? Let's look at it that way. And the having the personal protective equipment, and then more importantly, the mass casualty first aid supplies that were also brought in that grant so we can actually make a difference for large numbers of people. You know, our, our, the medical kits we carry are probably good for one or two people who suffer these kinds of injuries. Whereas each piece of apparatus can take care of 12 to 14 people. And then you combine that with the eight pieces of apparatus we have in the city. I mean, we can take care of a very significant amount of people. So having the personal protective equipment to reassure firefighters that they're protected as well as they can be, combined with uh, the idea that we are always operating under uh, protective detail from law enforcement who, who are tasked specifically to protecting uh, the triage team and the casualty evacuation teams, that we have people who are trained in defending those sort of things who have our back while we're working with the final piece of having the tools to solve the problem are what I think is made for a really robust program that uh, I think will serve our citizens well in the unfortunate uh, time when this becomes reality. In complex situations, it's pretty simple. Force multiplication, more people to do more tasks. And if we can delineate responsibilities, police able to do police stuff, what they're good at, fire and EMS able to do what they're good at is, is, is where that goes. So the police department for, for many years now has been training all officers in uh, tactical emergency casualty care, which is was initially modeled after the military's response to uh, combat injuries, mostly penetrating blast injuries. Um, and we, we focus mostly on pre-hospital preventable causes of death. Can you kind of speak to the medical treatment that we're looking at? Because that sets up for the next generation of citizen response and equipment in their own organizations. Absolutely. One of the things I think that the statistics bear out is that if somebody receives a uh, gunshot to the head or uh, especially upper torso, uh, they are going to be a very challenging patient to uh, to save in these kind of events, because instead of having that golden hour, you might have golden five minutes, if that, which is going to be hard just given even a response time, let alone getting organized. But what we've also seen is that there are in these uh, events, there are a large number of very survivable injuries if interventions are placed in, in short order. And those would, uh, you know, likely be injuries to extremities where that are capable of a, a lot of loss of blood. Um, so, you know, in each one of our 
individual first aid kits that we have for each one of the patients in in this type of event, you know, we've got a state-of-the-art tourniquet system that our firefighters are trained, as are your police officers, to deploy to, to stop the bleeding. Additionally, there are injuries such as um, a penetrating injury to the lungs that could lead to a pneumothorax or a tension pneumothorax, which are life-threatening, but can be mitigated in the emergency setting through a variety of other interventions. We're set up to do those things that have the highest probability of saving lives in that, you know, in that very short-term incident. However, the critical piece to this, as you well know, uh, being a 12-year you know, street medic before you join the police office, uh, is that nobody in the field is qualified to uh, stop these injuries, like maybe we could with a diabetic person or somebody with a seizure disorder. The definitive care has to go to the hospital. And so incumbent in our plans uh, that we've put together are ways to move large number of patients in unconventional means. And, you know, most states, Brandon, most states have laws that say EMS can't tra transport victims in a not anything but a licensed ambulance. And the nature of these incidents, we've taken all that off the shelf in this type of an incident, in a high threat incident where we use an uh, unconventional set of uh, standard of care, what we call an altered standard of care. And you and I well know if we have to move injured people out through a broken window into the back of a truck or into a Met bus, uh, that's what we are going to do uh, with no hesitation because when lives are really on the line, it's maybe not the right time to argue about some of the, the fineries. Um, We'll flush that out uh, afterwards. And, uh, you know, we've always said if you've got a damned if you do pile and a damned if you don't, uh, our, our stance is going to be to be damned if, because we did. Uh, and, and I think that in this setting, to be clear, in this type of setting is the right thing to do. You know, you bring up two good points. One is the decision making that oftentimes, you know, there, our leadership and our officers are faced in these major events is, your your task between a bad decision and a worse decision. Yeah. The other thing that you brought up, you know, your word unconventional, right? So going back to their evolution of law enforcement and fire changing from, you know, Columbine when we would just stay outside to now we go in. We've even evolved that to where we used to recommend that, you know, you had to wait for three or four officers before you would go in. We're now recommending solo officer entry because we know that the moment that the the suspect is confronted there's either a surrender, the suspect commits suicide, or there's an engagement with law enforcement, um, which stops the killing is, is essentially, which would be like your overall mission would be to stop the killing and then switch to mitigation of loss of life through, through, through treatment. So law enforcement and fire have had to go through all of these changes. Uh, law enforcement we hear locally have been working with the school districts for a long time. Our school resource officers have been doing a great job uh, implementing programs. They have uh, active shooter kits now installed in some mm -hmm. of the schools that have the medical supplies already pre-staged for us. But we're going to talk about that unconventional mindset shift for the citizens now. 
to where they're coming outside the box where you brought up, you know, hey, there's normally a policy where, you know, you're supposed to transport only patients to here. Well, if law enforcement and the responders are starting to think outside the box and unconventionally look at how they're going to respond to this, we also want the citizens and the businesses to think unconventionally and outside the box of how, how that they would respond or things that they could do inside that. And that moves us to like the next generation, right? Mm-hmm. Where we've got education to the citizens where uh, we have stop the bleed programs, which is a huge program now. Um, lots of places are buying first aid and medical kits. Um, lots of commercial buildings have already creating pre-designated emergency plans. Um, and one of the challenges we had, you know, with the school districts to kind of just point out this uh, this shift and change and resistance was, you know, it's it's a tough topic to have a conversation about, especially with younger kids. Yeah, it's also tough to talk about even as as citizens because of the violent nature of it. It's kind of re- it's repulsive. It's hard to think about. It's not a not what we want to have have conversations about, but it's a reality. Um, you know, and and and. Colonel Dave Grossman, he he kind of put some things into perspective about response to this stuff. You know, we do uh, fire drills at schools. Right. They're, they're mandated. Uh, we have fire suppression systems throughout schools to, to prevent major catastrophes. But yet in the last, you know, 40, 50 years, how many kids have died in a school fire? Right. But we ring the bell quarterly or whatever, and, and we line everybody out up into the parking lot for accountability, and we go through these drills. But we don't have the conversations about, you know, the school shootings. Uh, there's by far been more kids killed by gunfire than actual fire in, in yeah. a building. But but we drill it as part of uh, a consciousness. Um, and so we're slowly getting to that point where we're having those conversations and we're able to drill for those. But we were also fighting some of the the policies and procedures that were set place for for an emergency evacuation drill like that. So, for example... The last thing that you would want to do in an active shooter situation is is tell all your kids to meet you by the playground by the swings, right? Because now you've got a bunch of kids clustered up, and they're they're a target of opportunity. They could potentially be victims. Um, and getting to the point of of talking to the teachers, uh, you know, about the run lock fight, run hide fight, those different parameters that they they got to go through. So now now we're into that next generation of educating and preparing the citizens and the public and then and then we'll go on even further into the next generation of you know further training and educating anybody who might be an armed response um because you know there's there's some statistics out there and and let me pull them up here real quick but i think that they if i'm not mistaken it's almost 60 percent of active shooting incidents uh are already over with before the time that law enforcement arrives um, so there's a lot of things that, that citizens or businesses and employees can do in that meantime to help mitigate and reduce the, the impact of these, these events. Yeah, and without trying to open a can of worms here, Brandon, well, some of the conclusions I came to when I was working on my thesis at MPS was that education is going to be the key to this. And whether it's in smaller school districts that may even opt to go with an armed teacher response uh, or ones that want to re- rely, as we do in Billings, on, on actual law enforcement as opposed to armed security or whatever. The, the education piece is key. And if, if, if I had my way, we would construct these agile and resilient systems 
inside the schools that uh, that are help help them be more capable of managing a problem themselves to leave fire and EMS and law enforcement to deal with that problem. And I, I think what that could look like, Brandon, is uh, in in say, for instance, uh, maybe a public, uh, a physical education class, uh, maybe they teach a block on just first aid. You can maybe do that without necessarily having the context of why we're teaching first aid, you know, if we're worried about the students, but teaching first aid because you can read in numerous journals how the seven-year-old kid saved his grandma because he knew CPR, uh, you know, things like that, where people take that responsibility on themselves, and it, and it doesn't have to... Again, it doesn't have to include the context, but you know, I know both in Billings, in the high school, and in uh, Red Lodge, which is a much more uh, rural uh, jurisdiction, they have an EMT class as part of your high school curriculum. And I, first, I think if I would have had that opportunity myself, uh, I might have ended up more, uh, more in the medical field because I just never saw the, the, the straight line between science and where that goes. But after the hands-on part, that might have changed my path, but if every if everybody who's in public school or private school had an exposure to the type of curriculum that it comes down to saving lives, CPR, stop the bleed, etc., I think that would build help build a more resilient and agile system that could deal with these complex problems in a way that whether it's because it's a car accident or an active shooter or a medical heart attack. We're talking about saving lives across the board, regardless of context. That's a good point because the value of that in the event for the consequences of a crisis situation are significant. But you could be out hunting, hiking, skiing, uh, doing any event, and and that type of first aid would be valuable. Those are those are life saving events. Those are those are those are great points. I'm going to talk about a couple stats here real quick because Please. I think the stats kind of help paint a picture of, you know, one of the one of the best ways for us to predict future beha- behavior is, is to look at past stuff um, and kind of formulate plans off of that. So the FBI does a, uh, an ongoing study of active shooters, and this one is specifically referenced between 2000 and 2013. Uh, they have an updated version from 2014 to 2015, and the percentages stay relatively pretty much comparable. But uh, 70% of the active shooter incidents occurred in either a commerce, business, or educational environment. Um, shootings occurred in 40 of the 50 states and the District of Columbia. 60% of the incidents ended before police arrived. So that's over half of, half of those events were already done before officers arrived there. That again goes back to reinforce what you were just saying is is that this community response, this preparation to be able to respond to this prior to us is a key portion to uh, not only survivability of this, but there's an emotional uh, there's an emotional aspect to this when being a victim of a crime and being helpless is one thing, but then being a victim of an event of this, but being empowered to affect things in your realm has a, a certain amount of healing power that comes with it to know that you know you survived something like this and you you performed well and, and you helped others. Yeah. So, so there's not only like the, the immediate impact, but I think that there's a certain value to some emotional survival for the community after this if, if, if they're prepared. Yeah. Uh, casualties related in 64 of the incidents, which is 40%, 
the crime would have fallen within the federal definition of mass killings, defined as three or more killed under federal statute. Um, some stats on the shooters. Uh, all but two incidents involved a single shooter. So sometimes, and this will be important when we talk about information that you need to provide to law enforcement and why things are so confusing is, is this multiple shooter aspect. Uh, in at least nine incidences, the shooter first shot and killed a family member in a residence before moving to a more public location and continued shooting. We've mm -hmm. kind of already brought that up. In at least six incidences, the shooters were female. Yep. So they're not always male. Uh, in 64 uh, incidences, which is 40%, the shooters committed suicide. Uh, 54 shooters did so at the scene of the crime. Hmm. At least uh, five shooters from four incidents remain at, at large. Um, and I, this was all the way back in, in 2013, so that's probably not, not very relevant. Um, but Virginia Tech was one of those. You know, the Virginia Tech shooter committed suicide once he heard law enforcement advancing uh, on his position. I just want to reinforce to those listening that the goal of law enforcement is to stop the killing. Um, and so that's why our priority is, is to get to the threat as soon as, as soon as possible. Preservation of life. That's as most simply as, as I can, I can put the, the mission for law enforcement, uh, a little bit on some of the resolutions to kind of understand how these things unfold. Because when we start talking about citizen response options and preparation for law enforcement, first responder arrival, it's important to kind of empower people and understand what, what comes up about. But in 23.1% uh, of the cases, uh, the shooter committed suicide at the scene before police arrived. In 13.1%, the situation ended after an unarmed citizen safely and successfully fully restrained the shooter. In two of those incidents, three off-duty law enforcement officers were present and assisted. So we've all seen some of those videos where the teacher, you know, sees the kid with a gun and grabs him. Uh, yeah. There was the one, you know, the, the kid, I don't think he was intent on doing a, a school shooting, but I think he was there to, to commit suicide and the teacher grabbed him and gave him a hug. You know, that, was, that made media headlines. Yeah. But unarmed involvement can end some of these. Of note, 11 of the incidents involved unarmed principals, teachers, and others, school staff, and students who confronted shooters to end the threat. Nine of those shooters were students. Uh, in five incidents, 3.8%, the shooting ended after armed individuals who are not law enforcement personnel exchanged gunfire with the shooters. In these incidents, three shooters were killed, one was wounded, and one committed suicide. So again, some type of confrontation with the suspect usually results in, in the deviation of what their plan is. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the other things too, and, and I won't cover it too much, but there's often, a, with these types of incidents, there's often a plan. You yeah. know, Columbine had a plan. There was always some type of pre-plan or preparation. And as citizens, uh, when you're at one of these events, if you can disrupt that plan beyond their ability to adjust to it, then now you've just messed with their system yep. and that can affect the outcome positively. Uh, 1.3% of the incidents, two armed off-duty police officers engaged shooters, resulting in the deaths of the shooters. And one of those incidents, the off-duty officer assisted in responding officers to end the threat. Um, I think what's important to take away from those stats is that you have armed citizens responding in 3.8% of the cases, and then one3 you already had a law enforcement officer there. And, and we're going to delve into that a little bit deeper, but um, that's opportunity for another tragedy of one person shooting another person who thought that they were the threat when they were the ones responding to the threat under confusion and lack of situational awareness. Um, 
other stat here. So law enforcement suffered casualties in 21 or 46.7% of the cases. So almost half the time officers were either injured or killed in the response to this. Of 45 incidents where they engaged the shooter to end the threat, uh, this resulted in nine officers killed, four of whom were ambushed in a shooting, and 28 were, were wounded overall. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more about why law enforcement will do what they do, but sometimes these events involve more than just an active shooter. The Pulse nightclub turned into a hostage situation. Um, so those types of response from law enforcement might change and delay our ability to provide provide care based off of what they're dealing with. Um, and then one of the last ones we'll talk about is shooter outcomes. In 40%, uh, roughly 40% of the cases, shooters ultimately committed suicide. Most were males acting alone, and only 1.3% of the 160 incidents had more than one shooter, and only six, 3.8%, involved a female shooter. Um, so that's kind of some of the statistics and, and demographics that we're looking at. Uh, as we go into to this. So this isn't just uh, random places. This includes uh, workplace violence, uh, school mm -hmm. education violence. Right. Um, so I think we're kind of at the point now where what, what should you do? Like if you're a citizen yeah. and you're at the grocery store, um, what, what, what would you do if you heard the sound of gunfire? Well, that's a tough one, right, Brandon? Um, one of the things that, you know, gets in people's way is that OODA loop part, right? The observe, orient, decide, act that we all go through when we make any decision. And, you know, when we see a light turn yellow when we're driving, you know, we've been through enough training where you, you know where that, what to do next, you know, hit the brake because you're probably going to get the red light next. In an active shooter event, that is, uh, that's really different. And I, I think we can break that into two spots, right? And maybe the first one to talk about is what uh, an unarmed person may choose to do. Um, and I think the the bottom line is what you've, you've got kind of a, um, a few choices there, right? And I think they're easily broken down into run, hide, fight, which is one of the national teaching points for active shooters. Run, hide, and fight, and which one's right? Well, no two situations will ever be the same. But uh, if you have a choice, leave leave in a hurry get your people out of there uh when you're leaving be very observant of what's going on both for your own safety and possibly because you can give valuable intelligence to responding agencies um, hide that is a place or a tactic that is only limited by your imagination and um Hide sounds easy, you know, do I hide behind a stopping, you know, shopping cart? Do I hide behind a, a cardboard uh, display? Well, uh, maybe it's, maybe you can give a quick, uh, you know, briefing to our listeners about what you think about cover versus concealment and um, some outside the box things that, that we talk about when we talk to other people. Yeah, so under the, under the hide portion, you know, in law enforcement and even in, in the fire department, when we talk to your guys about working inside of these high threat environments, there's a difference between cover and concealment. And, uh, you know, cover is what, which stops bullets. Concealment is what just hides you. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're hiding uh, in a coat rack. The clothes aren't going to stop the bullets, but they may conceal your presence. Uh, but if you're in a parking lot, if you're behind the engine compartment of your car or even a large brick building, that is which, which stops bullets. Yeah, so maybe if you're in a, 
a building, you know, places with a steel door, um, you know, or a, a heavy metal fire door, for instance, things like that. Uh, anything, the heavier duty it is, the more protection it's likely to offer you from incoming gunfire. Um, but if you don't have a, if you have a choice, pick something that will stop bullets, P pick cover. If you don't have a choice, pick concealment. And I, I thought something you and I talked about earlier, which is a, a, a really good point, is what what people who are trapped in a situation like this should do with social norms themselves. Right. So, and that kind of feeds into, now we have a little bit of a plan, right? We've got a run, hide, fight. But what, is, what does that look like? And for me, that, that starts before you walk into the grocery store. You know, we, uh, I sit back and I, I people watch. Uh, you sh pull up to a stoplight and somebody's on their phone. Uh, you're, waiting for your, you're waiting for your medication at the pharmacy. You're always on your phone. Right, and one of the things that we do when we teach teachers um, these active shooter events is we actually take blank rounds and we fire guns down the hallway and around the corner, and and what we find is that gunfire inside of a building sounds like a locker door slamming, sounds like other stuff, and and throughout our our busy daily lives we don't recognize those sounds maybe immediately. So it takes us a little bit to get there. So overall with that plan you have, the situational awareness and the, and the forethought of thinking of what you would do. So when you walk into a grocery store, you know, what would be your, your exit pass? Where would be your egress? Um, even just paying attention, you know, in Boulder, the shooting started in the parking lot. Hmm. Sound of gunfire, you're in an open space. Um, so that situational awareness how often, Jason, do you are you out somewhere and you hear a car alarm go off? Oh, pretty much every day here. And 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 oftentimes nobody nobody even looks around to see what's going on. Is you know some did somebody hit the panic button? Did somebody trying to steal the car? We always attribute it to it's probably just a malfunction. Somebody hit a button and we we go about our day. And so that's where I want to start with the you know preceding the run hide and fight is is that your overall situational awareness of paying attention to your surroundings, reading body behaviors, um, things that make you uncomfortable, your body's telling you things for a certain reason. That is what gives you that little bit of a warning sign to give you more time to make a, a better decision so you can enact that stuff. And and I know that I'm not asking people to go around and, and live in a heightened state of awareness uh, to where they think that they're always going to get in, you know, you know, be at an active shooter event, but you've got to have a, a forethought of what you're going to do, whether it's at your place of business, stores you frequent, movie theaters, you know, just kind of have a little bit of a plan of action already set in your head based off of those priorities that you talked about. Uh, because if that's the first time that you're thinking about it and you're already behind the eight ball, um, you're just in run, hide, fight mode, which is good at best. Uh, but if you can be a little bit ahead of, the, ahead of the curve while you're standing in line at the movie theater waiting for your ticket, identify your doorways, identify the hallways, identify where things are at where you could go to or escape from. Um, and, and, and feed off of that situational awareness. The whole, the whole run portion of that, um, it's really, really simple. If you can't, if you're not there, you can't be a victim, <laughs> right? Under stress, people do weird things. They might want to uh, take their bags, their purse, uh, their something, your kids, uh, and your phone. Right, and and if you can't get to your phone and your cart's around the corner, 
get get out of there, right? Your life is more important than any piece of property that you would try to to, to get there. Try to help others to escape as well. Tran- transfer information if you can, um, but don't. If you're trying to help a wounded person, don't do so at the expense of yourself in the the initial phases because now you have everybody else dealing with two casualties instead of one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a time to prioritize us helping others and help them if you can, um, but if you can't, then 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 get out and then call nine one one. You know, keeping your hands visible. You don't know when law enforcement's going to arrive, when they're going to be there. Um, under the hiding portion, that's going to be like in the hierarchy of things. You know, we would rather see you run and get out of there. Hiding is just a matter of time. Is it a good hiding spot or not? But get your get your cell phone on silent. That way, it's not ringing. Yeah. Um, because you know you might have friends or family who are watching media and realize that you might be there. They start calling you. Um, lock any of the doors. Um, and this this one goes to a lot of the the, the businesses. Uh, we we teach run hide fight, run lock fight. There's a lot of different ways, but the concepts are the same. Um, let's let's talk about your, like your workplace. Have you ever you ever tried to move a file cabinet full of paper? It's super hard, right? So if you're sitting in your office, look at how you could barricade, right? Uh, Just moving your desk or office furniture in front of the doorway isn't as easy as it seems. Um, try to try to do that one time just just regularly with all your computer and everything on there. You may not be able to accomplish what you what you have initially planned. So try to put that plan in place a little bit. And then the last one is is, is fight. Um, this goes back to the concept of the moment that you engage the suspect, the the, the shooting usually ends or loss of life ends. Uh, the most recent case that I can think of with uh, that being a circumstance was was the was the young kid in Colorado on one of the more recent uh, shootings at the school was the one kid tackled the shooter Mm -hmm. Um, you know remember that there's going to be a lull in gunfire and if that lull in gunfire they could have a malfunction with their firearm they could be reloading Um, if you're in a position to save the lives of others um, I don't think that there's anything more heroic or noble that you could do for your community or other citizens than to to go on the attack and fight, especially if there's multiple of you in that position to do yep. so. That's last resort, um, and, and try to incapacitate the shooter. Uh, act as, as decisively with as much physical aggression as you can. Um, think about uh, improvised weapons, right? Uh, pens, maybe maybe you put a baseball bat in your office that's signed by all the Mustangs as a sports memorabilia, right? right? <laughs> so your office policy might say that you're not allowed to have weapons on site, but maybe you put something in your office that could be used as a weapon. Um, so that that goes to that pre-planning, that situational awareness, and then and then commit to your actions because when you're into the fight mode, that's that's it. You can either you know. You can either not fight, or you can try to end it and hopefully save yourself or or others. And that's going to be that's going to be last resort. And that's a that's a tough conversation to have with people. Yeah. Um, but me personally, you know, even being in law enforcement and you in, in fire, where we've risked our lives for others, there's a very clear defined 
point where I'm okay with giving my life so others may live. There's there's a yeah. there's a there's a clear definition for me, and I think people, uh, you know, the citizens would do well by drawing a line in the sand in their own head of what circumstance they would be willing to sacrifice themselves or at least risking life or serious, you know, injury for others. Yep. Brandon, we talked a lot about what strategies an unarmed person might do. Um, One of the things, you know, that I I guess I've looked at pretty extensively is that we have kind of a perfect situation for armed citizen intervention, you know, and uh, I think as far back as, or let me say it again, as most recently as 2017, uh, the FBI published uh, in their law enforcement bulletin an advisory about armed citizens uh, responding to these types of incidents. And, you know, in this law enforcement bulletin, they single out rural communities of which there are plenty surrounding Billings, and in, in some could argue that Billings is a rural community itself. And they talk about the ways that information can travel in rural communities, that there are a lot of volunteers uh, for sheriff's posse or ambulance or fire that are going to likely have immediate access uh, to the information that's being passed from callers through dispatch as they dispatch units to something like this. but. What they don't consider is that social media has changed our dynamics at which which with with which both good and bad information flow and so it's very likely in my estimation that social media could will will alert people before any official media does and you know one of the challenges that uh, i also identified is the idea of convergence which is generally outlined by a a couple of thinkers back in the 1950s, that they talk about the inward movement of people, equipment, and information towards any disaster. And you see that every day, right? Like you see people move towards the the problem and uh, both uh, people slowing down on the highway to look at car accidents, media is at pretty much every fire I'm at before I can get my head around and they're asking me what's going on. Um, information travels faster than ever and information on something on an event like this will draw people in and what elicited my attention is that um, we have kind of a perfect set of events right now for armed citizens like uh, uh, that in the last year uh, we've seen uh, more firearms sold than we ever have before and uh, the research I did says that uh, during and after crisis events are the drivers for, especially for first time gun buyers to purchase guns. Um, this last year, they said something like, uh, there are at least 40 million new fire purchased in 2020 with uh, estimates being between five and seven million new, new gun owners. And one of the concerning things there for me is that if gun purchasing can be considered an informal barometer of the public's faith in the government to do its job, you know, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't speak terribly high of the citizens' faith in the government's, you know, fire, in this case, fire, law enforcement, EMS, to protect them. The other thing that's uh, on the rise besides sales is more and more states are becoming shall-issue concealed uh, carry 
states where uh, you can get a CCW with a clean criminal background and the uh, jurisdiction is required to issue one at your request in most circumstances. Couple that with constitutional carry, which we just passed in Montana, that uh, allows for the concealed carry of firearms by state residents without a license. Um, and that uh, there's something like uh, 20 states now that have that with another three that are limited. Um, CCW permits are up from 1999, where there were about 2.4 million uh, to 16 million in 2017. And then finally, uh, 23 states now have uh, the Castle Doctrine, which basically says that uh, under varying circumstances, people have no duty to retreat from problems. And what those things put together for me suggest could easily become a reality is that people with uh, a large amount of training or possibly none at all uh, are both carrying firearms outside the house and may do so under what they at least perceive as a fairly uh, loosened rules of engagement. Um, couple that with this idea of uh, the world being a dangerous place and here, in, especially in the West, but other places as well, a kind of a do-it-yourself attitude where you know, our culture is to take care of our own problems uh, versus relying on the government. And I think when you put all those factors together, the fact that uh, we want to take care of ourselves, we view the world as being a dangerous place, there are a lot of firearms out there, uh, people can carry them outside the home, and may do so with a belief that uh, they can act um, you know, you know, assertively in these conditions, I see a likely rise in the amount of armed citizen response. And finally, I think this has been identified not just by the FBI, but at least by uh, uh, PoliceOne.com's uh, Mike Wood, who talks about how armed citizens can be part of the solution to active shooter incidents. Um, I don't know. What thoughts do you have? So, and that's a, a great question because, you know, we discussed the generations of law enforcement response starting from Columbine all the way to now. And, and where, what you and I are talking about is, is a, it's, it's future, yep. uh, but we're, we're, living, we're living the future change right now. We're, we're, you, you've identified all of the, all the factors leading up to this. And, and as you're sitting here, you know, talking about all of those stats, Jason, the one thing that really just comes to my mind, um, you know, not only with just armed citizens, but it's, it, it's a constitutional right, but there's a massive responsibility that comes with that. Yes. The responsibility to be well-trained uh, and to be well-educated and I would encourage anybody to become, shall I say, a, a student of being an armed citizen. And, and that's, that's all encompassing for me. That means that you're proficient, you're competent with it. Um, but most importantly, and, and this comes from, you know, my experience in law enforcement and training and working with firearms, you know, my whole career, is the importance of the decision-making that occurs when you are exercising that responsibility and that right. You know, we train all of our law enforcement officers that they're accountable for every round that leaves, leaves the end of their gun. Yep. 
you know, I've, I've, I've been on SWAT for almost 11 years now. We train for hostage rescue situations for, uh, you know, arguably some of your, your highest acuity shot placements and, and proficiency. And one of the things that we teach our guys is that our bullets should not be the one that end up killing innocent people. Absolutely. And in the event of a shopping center or a open facility or whatnot, understanding the concept of what's beyond what you're shooting at uh, and the ability to be able to manipulate that through certain techniques or tactics or means. Uh, and we're not going to go into that. This isn't the podcast for, for that type of a event. But while you may be given an opportunity to stop a threat, is it the right time and the right place and the right situation done, done in the right way? Um, and are you okay living with the fact that, you know, maybe potentially some of your rounds hurt or killed somebody who was not intended to? Um, and that's a huge responsibility to, to live with after the fact. So that goes back to the responsibility, the training, and the decision-making that occurs at the time. And then, uh, you know, one of the other concerns that I have, um, you know, I worked undercover narcotics for, for many years. And one of my concerns always was, even when we were engaged in law enforcement activity, I know many of the officers in town my concern was always when when marked law enforcement was coming into the mm -hmm. area that they wouldn't recognize who I was right and what my intentions were and we can have circumstances where let me just run a, a scenario out there let's say you have let, let's not even use uh, uh, you know a lot of our officers uh, even federal officers are required to carry their firearms off duty um, uh, there's lots of people who do that so what are the odds here in Montana that you've got more than one plain clothes concealed carry citizen in in the same Walmart or Target or wherever this may happen, maybe a sporting event, the school, and you hear gunfire and you look around the corner and you see a guy yelling, you can't hear what it is, but you're yelling and they're firing a gun. And so you choose to just engage that person. Well, that person actually was the one who was shooting the other bad guy with a gun. You just didn't see them around the corner. So there's a, there's a lot of situational awareness and behaviors that go into trying to read that to minimize, you know, like in law enforcement, we call it blue on blue. So those are all factors that I would encourage anybody who's an armed citizen to really think about is how you're going to intervene, how you, you know, how you portray that, how long is your weapon out, um, and for what reasons, and, and that situational awareness. And one of the other videos that really comes to my mind about situational awareness is a, an active shooter that occurred in a Walmart. I think you said it was in, in Nevada. Vegas, yep. And so there was an armed citizen getting his haircut. You know, usually there's a haircut place right towards the front of the store. He's in there getting his haircut. Uh, here's yelling, screaming, and gunfire. And, and the male suspect uh, was walking into the store firing his weapon. Uh, so the armed citizen uh, decided to intervene, started to follow the suspect, um, and was shot from behind. I believe he was killed by the suspect's partner, who was a female at the, yep. at the point in time. She was pushing a shopping cart full of long guns, and the armed citizen didn't observe that because of the tunnel vision that we talk about, uh, you know, when we're training, you know, law enforcement or firefighters in in the various other things that cause high stress reactions. And 
that's a that's a terrible outcome there where you've got somebody who's focused on stopping the problem on disrupting the shooter's OODA loop and because of their focus on that obvious problem they miss the almost almost equally obvious but maybe slightly somewhat less obvious but i think that generally speaks to the level of training that a responsible gun owner needs to take like how do you you know it's more than just can you uh present your firearm load it unload it shoot into it you know shoot accurately etc but how do you decide how do you determine right from wrong uh what pre-planning do you do for drawing a line in the sand when it's time for you are you going to make the choice to just remove you and your people or are you going to try to help other people i mean there's there's those things that you should as a responsible gun owner probably decide on beforehand um one thing i think you've got a unique perspective on brandon is what sort of things could an armed citizen expect from law enforcement? How should they respond to law enforcement to protect themselves and not end up being a statistic? Yeah, good, good, good question. Uh, once in a major incident like that, and we're gonna get, we're gonna talk about like some of the nine one one information after we we talk about this because it'll it'll prelude into what officers are doing, but. Put yourself in the shoes of the officer. You know, uh, definitely a uniformed marked police officer is going to have priority over everything. And 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 you, in your own mind, know that you're you're acting in good, but that officer hasn't determined that yet. Uh, lots of times, the shooter will surrender with other people. They'll go ditch things, and they can come out of the building. So yeah. so citizens, you know, prepare to you know when we talk about prepare what happens when law enforcement there, you may be treated as a suspect for a while and, and yeah. until we determine otherwise. Um, but absolute compliance, um, I would prefer that, you know, your gun was put away so it wasn't there, visible. Um, you know, the officer is going to have uh, very minimal information likely. Uh, the 911 call centers are oftentimes really overwhelmed and we get, sometimes we get misinformation. We get, uh, you know, other reports of certain things that, that might create other, other information that they're trying to, to filter through. But remember that, you know, you've had a few minutes maybe to orient yourself to the situation, the problem, and then officer just first show up and on scene, just know that he's going to an active shooter. And, and pretty much anybody with a firearm who's showing hostile intent uh, is going to draw attention. So uh, absolute compliance, show your hands. Um, don't be offended if the officer, you know, takes your gun from you to, to secure that, even if you're offering to help because we don't, they just don't know. Yeah. One of the, one of the situations that comes to my mind that was a, was a multiple shooting event was, uh, I believe down in Florida at a border patrol law enforcement facility, they actually had a workplace violence where one officer shot another officer or a supervisor or something, and they were all plain clothes. Yeah. And you even had in this law enforcement facility, you had all these, you know, plain clothes officers that were wanting to help. They're like, Hey, I'm a cop. I'm a this, I'm a that. And, uh, you know, kudos to the, the on-scene commander that showed up who basically just advised everybody, if you're not a uniformed police officer that works for my police agency, you will stand down and you will not participate in this at all. And until we're done 
figuring this out, this is this is where it stands. Um, and, and that's also helpful for the for the victims or the people in there that once the uniforms start showing up, that that's where they know that that the, the safety and security is. Um, but those deconfliction of, of, of compliance uh, and really using your body posture and your words to very clearly show the officer hands up palms forward i am not a threat to you because that officer is trying to make decisions at that point of is this person a threat or are they they not a threat and those things happen very very quickly so that would be my my advice for an expectation of of coming in Um, and i don't go into too much more detail because there's just so many variables to right. that. You got a uniformed police officer. You you hear you see sirens or you're hearing commands. Then I would I would yield yield to those. So that'll take us to. Is there anything else? Because I know that you've you've done a lot of research on the arm armed citizen portion, but I think we just want to hit those things. Is is that it's a huge responsibility, the training and the education that comes involved with it. Because I I agree with you that. With the amount of uh, carry, and I think we're going to see more citizens respond. And clearly, statistically, you know, here we're being told that 60% of these events end before law enforcement even arrives. Yeah. There is, realistically, I don't think you can sit here and say that there's not an area where, where armed citizens aren't going to intervene in those, those circumstances. So we just need to reach out, have good information, good communication, good education, good training. And, and hopefully that'll be a good foundation to start with, with where we go forward with stuff. I guess I just have two final points then um, to any listeners who are in law enforcement. I think my advice to them would be be in touch with what the gun culture in your area looks like. Know your laws that are relevant in your state, county, city, for what a legal gun carrying uh, uh, legal gun carrier has to go through, I'm reminded of a jurisdiction in uh, Florida where the chief of police actually issued a letter thanking armed citizens for going through all these processes um, and then giving them some general advice on how to properly disclose that they're carrying a firearm to law enforcement if they're ever stopped. So be aware of what your culture looks like and. Mike Wood, again, with Police One, you know, wrote an article about, you know, man with a gun call that just because there's somebody there with a gun does not always indicate a threat to law enforcement. However, it does complicate the situation you're in. And so to law enforcement, I say, maybe look at how they're handling the gun. Do they look like they're trained? Um, are they uh, carrying it in a professional manner? Are they pointing it in a safe direction? Are they giving commands similar to what you're familiar with? Um, th- things like that. You know, just be aware of, of what things look like in your community for legal gun owners because I know that most of the time your concerns lie with what uh, illegal gun carrying and illegal gun possession looks like. Uh, to armed citizens, I guess what I would say is there's two things. Um, First, uh, if it's not worth killing for or dying for, it's probably not worth fighting for. And finally, when you decide to intervene in a situation like this, think of that as the worst wager you've ever placed in Las Vegas where you're betting everything that it comes out right. And if you hit 
all you get to keep is what you had before, both from a criminal liability, a civil liability, and very likely a you know a lethal encounter. So there, there's no way to, to tell you what to do in any situation, but I, I think those are fair guidelines uh, for armed citizens to consider. Those are all good words of advice, Jason. Let's talk about kind of the impending um, uh, response of law enforcement and, and how we get there and what can and make our jobs a little easier. Yeah. Uh, and that's under the conclusion that the, you've already run, you've done the hiding, or you've, you've had the fight. Uh, part of that is is at some point in time you need to need to call law enforcement. And let me rewind here about the the run hide fight real quick before I forget, because uh, going back to Boulder to, to to prove that these principles work and they're probably done whether you know it or not, just instinctually under under threat. And and, and I'm referring to a couple of news articles regarding to Boulder here, and one of them was. Uh, headline was man says family members hid inside closet for an hour so they f- they found some place to hide in and then we have another one uh, newspaper article here it says um, barista saves elderly co-worker by covering her with trash cans during shooting wow. yet 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 again so what we have is is we have a, a heroic act by somebody else placing things over somebody to make it look like it's not there all in order to to you know hide them to increase their chances for survival that all falls in that run hide fight it all falls into help if you can uh and and then that moves us into the whole like calling 911 uh you the priority for you is is to get away or get to a good hiding spot where you can share information uh by no means would we expect anybody to 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 call 911 in priority of their own safety to get to a location first that should shouldn't be there but but it is an important key in the process to initiate a law enforcement response some of the things uh, you know put put it into perspective here in these major events and all the after action reviews that i've reviewed when you listen to the 911 calls you've the call center gets bombarded with information which is great don't don't not call 911 (laughs) because you think somebody else is is going to right but You'll you'll subtly when you're listening to those 911 calls, it'll be a white guy, it'll be a somebody wearing a white t-shirt. No, it'll be a white white hoodie. It'll be a jeans. No, it'll be black pants. It'll be this. It'll be that. You know, under stress, people perceive things in different ways, or they may only saw a glimpse, or they saw somebody running who looked like, or there's lots of confusion going on. So. That information that law enforcement is getting is very preliminary. Also, remember that if you're in a larger event or you're in a larger area and you're the, not the only one calling 911, you might have somebody 100 yards away from a different perspective providing information and they're saying that they're by the grocery section and you're over by the automotive section. And when you're giving that information, it may go out to the officers as last seen by grocery section or last seen by automotive. And then there can obviously be different descriptions. So officers may not know that there's only one shooter, but we're getting different locations, different descriptions, different times, all that kind of stuff. So lots of confusion. Some of the, the, the stuff that we're most concerned with is, you know, where was the shooter last seen? Uh, how many, 
what types of weapons. Um, if you can, casualties where they're at, because that helps the fire department and their, their, their pending plans and response, what they're going to have going on. Um, but those are, those are what we're looking at, the best description, what type of weapons, where they're at, what they're going, what they're, what they're doing, are they yelling anything. Those are the things that we're looking for to get zeroed in because uh, law enforcement's main objective at that point is, is to get to the most recent information to get to the threat as, quick as, as quickly as they possibly can. Once law enforcement arrives, is it, before we talk about information to 911, is there anything else that you think that they should have as, as the fire engines are sitting there listening to this information come in, things that they would like to hear? Brandon, you pretty much covered it. So the important pieces to us are going to be uh, numbers of casualties, maybe location of casualties, uh, severity of injuries. Uh, the, that kind of initial medical information is is what the firefighters are going to be listening for in, in getting ready to do their operations. Once once law enforcement starts arriving, um, their goal is is to get to the threat. And, and, and one of the things that we see happen uh, time and time again, once law enforcement comes, uh, we get people who swarm law enforcement because that's where the safety is. Um, understand that they're going to bypass all injured, wounded. If there is active killing going on and gunfire, the officer's sole objective is is to bypass everybody and everything and go towards the sound of gunfire. Uh, because we know that once we start to engage, uh, that the killing stops. And, and that's one of the big things when you look at uh, you know these high threat instances is We've got to stop the killing first before we can start dealing with the other with the other stuff. Um, anticipate that you know. Show your hands. Be compliant. Point officers to the to the best direction that you can of what you saw as they're passing through. Give them as much information as you can. Anticipate that you know if there's groups of you uh, that they might try to have you. You know they might corral you. They might have your hands up in the air. They may treat you with suspect precautions until they know otherwise. Uh, and, and we know that through the history of events that the shooter sometimes leaves the scene. Uh, not only sometimes do they leave the scene before law enforcement gets there, but they leave the scene while law enforcement is there. They'll, they'll ditch their, their weapons or their long guns and they'll try to leave with uh, the, rest of, uh, the rest of the people inside the building. So we're cognizant of that. Um, so we're trying, to, we're trying to contain this situation. Um, once we once we're there to that stage we're already uh planning through policy is that you know our goal is is to minimize and neutralize the threat as quite quick as we can and then start implementing uh, getting the fire department into the warm zone to start providing care sorting and treating as quickly as we possibly can uh, if you are still in the building it's likely that we may use you uh, to help care for people. Um, you can help stop bleeding. You can help us put tourniquets on. You can help uh, medical providers do things in certain areas that, that, that can, uh, so we may put you to work. Um, so be, you know, be willing as, as you can to do that while the situation unfolds. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's going to be a long kind of process after that, but I think we'll just stay focused on the what happens when we're there and what we're going to and realizing, you know, the, the challenges that we're facing when we're when we're dealing with uh, that situation, you know, officers carry medical equipment in their car, uh, even though it's not their main priority in the very initial phases. You're likely going to see officers providing medical care. 
um, and putting tourniquets on people. Um, and so that's kind of what our re response priority is going to look for. One of the questions that kind of comes up is, especially after Parkland, and one of the one of the big things after Parkland was um, some some issues with officers not going into the building right away, especially yeah. since we had learned that lesson in Columbine very early. I know that the one, yep. de one deputy, the school resource officer, took quite a bit of heat for that. Yeah. Um, I'm not gonna armchair quarterback it. We're not gonna break it down. Uh, this is straight from the policy of the Billings Police Department, uh, from our active shooter and our rescue task force policy. The policy of the department in an active shooter situation is that immediate action by officers at the scene is necessary to limit serious injury and life, loss of life. So pretty clearly defined, our officers and the expectation of our officers who respond to these incidents are expected to act to mitigate loss of life. Uh, and that's where, that's where we officially stand on the standpoint. Um, and then after that, you know, we don't, we've already been here for an hour and a half. We don't need to go into all of the details of how the, the police department is working with the fire department. We've kind of covered, covered some of that, but that, that multi-jurisdictional relationship with command and control and division of responsibilities um, is, is super important because it's not only just for active shooter stuff. Let's go back to the high threat conversation. These are mass casualty events that are highly complex, that are rapidly evolving. And, and Jason, you know, you'd spoke to those concepts and principles and guidelines that, you know, should guide these types of events. And really what it breaks down to for law enforcement is initially law enforcement is going to work off of the priorities of life. You know, innocent victims first, then first responders, then themselves, and then the suspect below that. And then property is all the way on the bottom. Uh, you know, damage of property to save life and or escape from is completely, completely acceptable in a, a, a circumstance like this. Um, and then once we start to integrate with fire, then we have another set of goals and priorities of reaching people, um, getting them sorted, getting them evacuated, getting them transported, all in certain orders. So really, I think to sum all of that up, the, the, the best way to describe how we have decided to, to move forward with our rescue task force policy that we've worked with Jason is that that we use principles and guidelines to guide us as a toolbox, more so than uh, if it's this, do this, if it's that, do this. It's not a linear progression. This is a toolbox of options that it's left up to whoever's on the scene who can see it, feel it, touch it, who are empowered to make the best decision that they can at the time. Yeah, absolutely, Brandon. Um, you know, I just wanted to speak to organizations and buildings a little bit, uh, businesses, uh, again, issues of workplace violence and even preparation. Uh, the Billings Police Department does meet with local businesses and we can go over threat assessment. We can go over uh, strategy and planning for response uh, to these types of events or incidents. Uh, more than willing to give any recommendation on medical training, stop the bleed stuff. Uh, you know, it kind of goes, Jason, to what you were talking about would, would be educating citizens in school on how to even just have basic first aid, using tourniquets, stopping bleeding. Uh, that's something that your organization could do pretty easily with a, just a couple hour of training is just bring somebody in, do a stop the bleed program, and then have, have first aid kits in your facility. Yeah, Brandon, I mean, those first aid kits should be sitting right next to the AED. 
the Stop the Bleed program? Should accompany your CPR and AED usage program? Because you're doing more than just preparing your business uh, for an event like this, but you're preparing individuals for any type. You're giving them the tools, just like we have, we have tools we were talking about uh, to deploy. You're giving people tools and capacity to take care of themselves, take care of their neighbor, their family, friends, coworkers. Uh, I think that should be an integral part of any, any business's safety plan any uh, school's educational curriculum, because those are tools that, uh, that can save people's lives and minimize what, what we might call the moral injury that can accompany an event like this that often lasts much longer, you know, that, that sense of helplessness that, that comes in an event like this um, for people that don't know what to do, show them what to do. Uh, that can help on so many levels that it's uh, it's it's almost hard to quantify. You made me think of something that that you know builds on that. With uh, one of the things that we see come up time and time again when we're doing active shooter presentations with organizations or we're talking to people about it, there's a couple things that we see as a organizational hurdle. Uh, as kind of like an organizational system to deal with this. Uh, one of the things is the lack of uh, the ability to barricade or lock down a facility. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways where you can, um, you know, block a door, jam a door, lock it. Uh, there's uh, aftermarket equipment that you can buy for certain places that you can place stuff in to fortify a location, to harden, your position, if you will. Um, but then, then the other big one, especially when we're dealing with large facilities, um, the lockdown procedure is very micromanaged. Um, ask yourself in your organization, who can order a lockdown? And, and usually the answer is, is that only the boss can say lockdown. Well, what happens if the boss is the first one who gets, gets shot? What happens when the boss is, isn't, isn't there? Uh, you should have procedures in place that allows the lowest person in your, your organization to call for a lockdown and everybody takes it serious. We oftentimes get a sense of feeling when we're dealing with these large organizations that there's a resistance to go into lockdown due to a disruption because they don't want to unnecessarily go into a lockdown. Um, I guess the question there, Brandon, is if the fire alarm goes off, does everyone follow the fire alarm procedures? Because if the answer to that question is yes, then you're already conceptually on board with there are things that are worth interrupting business for. And the, to adopt the policies that Brandon's talking about just requires a little bit of bend in, in corporate philosophy. And, and I if wanna... you're not following the fire, if you're not evacuating when the when the smoke alarm goes off, you should reevaluate that too. Right. I think we got some fire marshals who would like to like to chat with you. Yeah. But let me reinforce, and I just want to make a final point of why that's so important, is when it comes to a large facility that contains a lot of people, your ability to lock down and compartmentalize the threat from other locations in the facility saves lives. If they've, if they've breached and they've gained access into one area, okay, we don't have control over that. 
But if we can lock down a facility and, and, and lock down hallway doors and other stuff, well, then the, the bad guy is oftentimes going to take the path of least resistance. It takes time to break a door down. It's difficult to ballistically shoot through stuff to, to get through a doorway from one area to the other. If those lockdowns slow down the progress of the shooter and allow time for law enforcement or other resources to get there, that delay of time not only disrupts their plan, but it saves saves other people from becoming victims as well. So I would just ask these any organization in Billings, whatever, whether you're big or you're small, seriously reevaluate your lockdown procedures or your emergency response plans. Get a hold of the police department. We're more than happy to send guys out who are educated in these types of things to have internal discussions with you, even more in depth. But those are all things that you can do beforehand that could help mitigate and minimize the impact of these events. Um, so we're not just helpless walking around wandering waiting for for the next event to occur on that note uh i think we're kind of wrapping wrapping things up we've covered a lot of stuff jason yeah um i hope at the end of this everybody's got a better understanding of active shooter incidents i hope that they have a better understanding of what their responsibilities should be on how to prepare for and respond to uh, if involved in one of these Uh, we've covered the armed citizen um portion of this and, and we've talked to run hide fight we've talked about what the organizations can do what else are we missing in this overall picture jason that uh that we can give to the listeners brian i, th- I think we've covered all the topics that we set out to the i guess the final piece i'd like to say and i, I think society at large is getting beyond this but the it can't happen here it won't happen to me philosophy needs to change um, at the federal level and certainly at uh, the Billings Fire Department, the Billings Police Department, we view the risk as agnostic, meaning that we are all equally at risk because we there is no way to predict when or where this type of event can unfold. And so the first the first piece of this, if there's still any reservations in any, anybody listen to this is uh, mind about th- this not being relevant to you, please acknowledge that, the, you know, the people who are in the, uh, the grocery store that day in Boulder, people who are at the music festival in Vegas, uh, people who are going to school at Parkland, uh, Sandy Hook, any of these other tragedies, nobody went to school that day thinking today's the day. And so please, uh, if, if there's one cultural, structural piece that I'd like to see changed is people doing away with the idea that it can't happen to me, it won't happen here. And I'm not suggesting that people need to live their life in code yellow, code, code red, but just that situational awareness that uh, you talked about, Brandon, keeping your head on a swivel, whether it's for that car that's going to punch that yellow light right when it turns green for you, and uh, if you would have pulled out right when it turned green, gotten smashed, whether it's uh, you know something wrong in your neighborhood, uh, something wrong with one of your friends, keep your head on a swivel and just be aware of the situation. You know what's what's going on around you, 
because that ounce of prevention is way better than the pound of cure. There are things that are in your control and there are things that are not in your control. And by no means are we saying that this is the ultimate way to, to say that you're, nothing's ever gonna happen to you. Statistically speaking, uh, these are very, very rare, right? Uh, but they, they cause a lot of impact into the community, a lot of, lot of hurt, a lot of pain. I'll, I'd leave you with this. You have to be prepared. It's not if it's ever going to happen to you, because likely those listening to this probably will never happen to you in your lifetime. Yeah. But it's about the consequences that if it does, if you aren't prepared. So simply put, it's not if it's going to happen, it's what are the consequences if it does. And uh, so that's where uh, I think we'll leave it for the day. Uh, Jason, thanks for spending the time. It's glad to, ha- <laughs> glad to have you. I appreciate it. No, and Brandon, thank you for doing this. I think this sort of outreach is, is the way we begin to accomplish that education piece that uh, I've concluded is, the, uh, is, is where it all starts. So thank you for having the foresight to do it. All right. And to the listeners who made it all the way through the end of this, uh, till next time. Thank you.